verses this evening. One is found in Matthew chapter 26. This is the original verse, and then we're going to read Paul's reference to this verse. So they are very similar. For the past month or so, on Sunday evening, we've been speaking in regards to the Lord's Supper, talking about all the different aspects of it and trying to look at it very closely and have a good understanding of what it's all about. This is one of the original verses that we read as we as we began our study. In verse 26, it makes reference to Jesus taking the bread, and He blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. But verse 27 is the verse I want you to think about. And there's one short, brief phrase there that I want to think about tonight. Verse 27, And He, that is the Lord, He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. Notice those brief words, gave thanks. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is Paul, years later, and he is recounting that event. And he tells us in verse 24, And when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Many years ago, a visitor was looking around in St. Paul's Cathedral and seen the many monuments that had been erected to the greatest persons in the British Empire. Finally, the visitor made this statement. He said, Where is the monument to the architect. The guide took him to a slab where he was buried beneath, and inscribed on that slab were these words, If you would see his monument, look about you. You know, as we come to the Lord's table, as we think about the Lord's Supper, that's what I want you to do. Look about you. And see the bread that represents His broken body. I want you to see the fruit of the vine that represents His precious blood. And I want you to see His people, those that had been redeemed as a result of what He did. And we see His monument, the people redeemed from sin. According to the verses we've read tonight, there ought to be an element of thanksgiving in regards to the Lord's Supper. Uh, We ought to always be thankful. But there are certain times that our attitude of gratitude ought to soar to extraordinary heights. The Lord's Supper is one of those times. And I don't know, but maybe... Maybe we have emphasized the seriousness of the supper to the point that, that we fail to realize that there is room for rejoicing also. And again and again, you'll hear me, as I have already, talk about what a serious matter this is. But something can be serious, and at the same time, we can be rejoicing about it. Sometimes we speak of the Lord's Supper as a commemoration, and it is that. 
We speak of the Lord's Supper as a proclamation, and it is exactly that. We speak of the Lord's Supper from the standpoint as a time of examination, and it ought to involve that. But tonight, I want you to think about the Lord's Supper as a time for thanksgiving. Remember this. If Jesus, as He anticipates the cross and the shame and the humility and thought about the suffering that that lie ahead, if He could see in all of this an occasion for giving thanks, then we need to celebrate the Lord's Supper with that same kind of attitude. An attitude of gratitude. Remember, as I said earlier, His memorial, His monument is His people a people that have been redeemed. That, that was the purpose of His coming, to provide redemption for fallen man. I, I want you to think about three serious and yet very wonderful, wonderful things that ought to make us rejoice tonight. Three things about the redemption that Christ has provided. Number one... Redemption proclaims love. Now, I know there are those who question the love of God. There are those that have gone through tribulations and trials to the point that they have suffered to the extent that they wonder in their heart, how could God really love us? I mean, if God loves us, how could God let this happen? We walk up and down the corridors of the hospital and we see those little children that are, that are fighting cancer and other diseases. And we see them in their pain and their agony and we wonder how could a God of love let something like this happen? We go to, uh, maybe to the funeral home and we watch a family as they grieve over the loss of their loved one. A good person, someone that loved the Lord, somebody that served the Lord, and we wonder how could this happen. So I understand why there are those who would, uh, would wonder how God could really love us. But you see, we cannot gather our information from our observation because that's never good enough. And we can't depend on our feelings. We always have to look at the facts. And if we're going to get the facts, we have to get those facts from God's Word. And here, here's the facts. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I mean, right there it is. And again and again and again in plain, simple English over and over and over again, God says, you want to know if I love you? Here, I give you my son. When we look to Calvary, it ought to remove all of the doubt in our mind as to whether God loves us or not. Make no mistake about it, folks. This is fundamental to absolutely everything. Nobody will ever be saved until they acknowledge the fact that they are a sinner, that Jesus is Lord, and that Jesus loved us enough that He gave His life for us. We'll never love one another until what? Until we realize that He first loved us. You see, our two main commandments 
As Jesus said it, first of all, is that we love the Lord our God with everything that's in us. And secondly, that we love our neighbor as ourself. But how can we, how can we do that? The only way it can happen is by remembering what the Apostle John said, we love him because he first loved us. That, that's the only reason. Until you realize that God loves you, you will never love God. You might be interested in religion. You might be devoted to a particular denomination. You might be, have a, a charitable attitude toward your fellow man. And all of those good things could be said about you, but you will never love God until you understand that He loves you. And by the way, there couldn't be anything more amazing than that. When we realize who we are, what we are, it's so amazing. You know, how could God love us? He loved us in that while we were yet sinners. I, I've never gotten over that verse, Romans 5, 8. I, I, I can't get beyond that. It's a love that goes beyond our understanding. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It reaches to the highest star and reaches down to the lowest hell. If every stalk on earth was a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above, hey, look, we couldn't do it. We'd drain the ocean dry. It would be impossible. And so we see that redemption proclaims love. The very fact that God has redeemed us proves that He loves us. And that's why we say so often, if God never does anything but save us, we have never any reason to complain. Never. Because we don't deserve anything. The thing that always ends up getting me in trouble, the thing that always hinders my, my attitude from being what it ought to be is this right here, and that is the thought that I deserve more, bigger, or better than what I've got. And I think we all have a problem with that to some extent. And that's why when we're suffering, we, we reason in our mind, this isn't fair. It's just not right. Because after all, so-and-so's never had a pain in their life, and I, I don't understand it, and here I'm living with pain. And, you know, and we look at the others and their lands and their gold and all of their prosperity, and we look at our problems, and all of a sudden... We start thinking that this is just not fair. But when we come to realize that we don't deserve anything whatsoever, I mean none of us, the best of us deserve absolutely nothing, then, then we begin to look at everything as a gift from God, an expression of God's love. And the capstone of all of that is what? Redemption. He did not just provide our needs. Hey, listen, He has done that for all of mankind. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, right? He causes their crops to grow and their blessings to come upon people that are thankful and people that are not thankful. But those of us who know Him as Savior, think about it, we have been redeemed by His precious blood. It proclaims His love. Secondly, redemption 
provides life. It proclaims love, but it provides life. Now, I just said there's nothing more wonderful than the love of God. Nothing could possibly exceed that. But, what if that's all there was to it? Just a just a feel-good kind of relationship between us and God. And God said, I love you, I really care about you, and I hope that you will experience the very best. In fact, I love you so much, I'm going to take a hands-off approach. You deserve to be punished, but I'm not even going to do that. I, I'm, I'm just going to leave you to yourself. I, just hands-off. You you deserve punishment, but I'm not going to do it. Just hands off. What value would the love of God be to us if that's as far as it went? The death of Jesus, the work that He did for us, doesn't just reveal His love, but it also provides life. Spiritual life. John chapter 6, if you'll turn there, beginning in verse 53, and here we find our Lord saying this. He said this unto them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever." This is that amazing story of our Lord as He's dealing with those folks in His day, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, those religious Jews who thought they were a cut above everybody else. And the Lord puts this in such plain, simple English that even the children understand it. We know that this is a figure of speech, uh, the same figure of speech that He uses in regards to the Lord's Supper. He talks about being the bread, and, and, and he talks about his body. He talks about his blood that was shed. The same things involved in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And he says it's in the eating of this bread, that is, in the partaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive life. Jesus did not have to come to earth in order to provide physical life. By the way, I mean, here we are, we're already alive. He came to provide life in the truest sense, and that's spiritual life. Remember, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundant. In other words, something more than they got. And so if you partake of this bread, you receive life. That's what every person needs because by nature, every person is spiritually dead. That's not a pretty picture, by the way. Dead. I mean, there's nothing flattering about that. In fact, the Bible has no flattering words for the unsaved person. They're like dumb sheep that have gone astray. 
dead. God said to Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall die. That very day, that very moment that Adam sinned against God, he died. Not physically. We know that he lived 930 years, so he did not die physically that day, but spiritually he died. You see, death is not an alienation, or it's a separation. We die physically whenever the Spirit leaves the body. We're dead spiritually when the Spirit is separated from God. There was a separation that took place on that day where, just like you would disconnect the battery cable from an automobile and we would call it dead, that connection between man and God was severed when Adam sinned. And we've all been affected by that. And the only thing that can reestablish that connection is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only by trusting Him that we are able to have the life that we desperately need and the life that He came to provide. So we see a demonstration of His love for us and we see the provision of life. The thing we need most. Thirdly, whenever we think of the Lord's table and we think about this matter of redemption, redemption procures liberty. There's love that's in evidence. There's life that has been provided, but there's also liberty that has been procured by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is why this is important. Redemption affects us right here, right now, as well as in eternity. Some people, when they're thinking about salvation, all they think about are the fluffy clouds and the pearly gates and the streets of gold and all of those things related to heaven. All they think about are things that, that, that has to do with what's going to happen after we're dead and gone. But we need to understand that Redemption does not just save us from the wrath to come. Redemption does not just provide for us eternal life in heaven. Redemption brings about a change right here, right now, in this world. It sets us free from the bondage of sin. Listen, listen to the way Paul put it in Galatians 1 verse 4. Speaking of Christ, it says, who gave himself for our sins. Now, we all knew that, right? He died for our sins. But listen to this explanation. That he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Then he says in chapter 5 and verse number 1, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and not and not be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I don't know about you, but when the Lord saved me, I'm so thankful that the Lord didn't do something like this. I, I'm glad that He didn't just save me and say, Look, David, when you die, you're going to heaven, and it's going to be wonderful. I needed God to do something right here, right now in my life that would make a difference. My wife needed a new husband. My children needed a new father. When God saved me, He didn't say, Look, 
You're now one of my children, but you'll have to spend the rest of your life in these bar rooms and honky-tonks. When the Lord saved me, the Lord began to deliver me from the power of sin. Now, it's not complete. It never will be complete in this world right now. You see, when we get saved, salvation is actually in three tenses. There is a past element, a present, and a future. In other words, when you receive Christ as your Savior, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You'll never have to answer for that. Someday you're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. Won't that be wonderful? But right now we are being saved from the power of sin. This is why this is so very important, folks, because some folks have this crazy idea that they just can't help themselves, that they just can't do anything about it. You know, they're, they're, they're an alcoholic or whatever their particular sin is, and they've got the idea, I just, I, I, I can't give up my sins. I, I love the Lord, and I'm going to heaven, and I'm excited about that, but I just can't be victorious. Those who have never been saved, listen carefully, because we need to understand the situation they're in because sometimes we leave the impression that we think they can break away anytime they want. We look at the addict and we say to the addict, look, you, you don't have to do that unless you want to. We look at the thief or the murderer or whoever it is and we, we tell them, look, you can help yourself if you just would. You don't because you're just rotten to the core. But my Bible says that those that are unsaved are, now get this, they're taken captive by the devil at his will. I'll never forget the first time that that verse really got a hold of my heart and I really began to understand. Taken captive by the devil at his will. And I begin to understand people are like they are, not necessarily because that's what they want to be, but because they are enslaved to Satan. They're they're like a puppet, and he's pulling the strings. Taken captive by him at his will. But the very moment the Lord saves us, the Lord begins to do a work in our heart and begins a process of changing our life. That big, long-sounding, fancy theological word that is often used for that is called sanctification. It means that God is sanctifying us. God is working in our life. God is making us holy. He's making us something that we've never been before. If any man be in Christ, he's a what? A new creature, right? Old things pass away, all things become new. I'm thankful that in the redemption that the Lord provides, that He has redeemed us. Now picture this. Before you're saved, you're like like a slave. And here you are in the slave market. And the Lord redeems you. That means He purchased you. He bought you out of the slave market of sin, and He set you free. While the unbeliever cannot help himself, 
He can't become something he's not by his own effort. Every child of God sins because they choose to. We don't sin because we must. We make a choice. Boy, do we ever make some foolish choices at times. Redemption will do more to change society than anything else in all of the world. That's why, you know, we keep talking about the changes that our nation needs to make. We think about the different things that needs to be done, and we think that maybe if we enact these laws against this and against that, and if we establish these different programs, and I, you know, I keep hearing this, and by the way, I'm all for education, but we keep hearing our politicians say, we've just got to educate people. We, we've got to educate people. Uh, the only way they're going to get out of poverty is if we educate them. The only way they're going to eat better and be healthier is if we educate them. Well, education is well and good, but that's not the solution to our problems. The only thing and the best thing that will change our society is the redemption provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the Lord's table, when it was established, it said that He took the bread and He gave thanks. The bread represents what? Himself. I mean, He knows that very clearly. He's been teaching that. I'm the bread that was sent down from heaven. Now, He takes that bread that is symbolic of His body... Are you getting the picture? Is it forming in your mind? He has the bread in his hands, and that bread represents him, and he's about, to, he's about to offer himself on the cross. And he gave thanks. If that was our Lord's attitude about the redemption that He was providing, if that's His Lord, our Lord's attitude about the suffering that He was going to face, what should our attitude be when we come to the Lord's table? It ought to be this. And generally we use this verse at Christmas time. Paul said to the Corinthians, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. That makes a wonderful text for Christmas or even for Thanksgiving, but it could never be any more appropriate than when we think about the Lord's Supper. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. If I had more time tonight, I would... uh, I would talk more about this because they tie together. When we think of the Lord's Supper, and we've looked at it from different aspects, but we need to think of the Lord's Supper as a committal, a commitment. What is Jesus doing when He holds that bread in His hand and He takes it and gives it to the men there and says, Here, I want you to take and eat. Look at verse 28. Notice carefully what he says. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat what? That bread and drink of that cup. 
In other words, there is to be an examination of oneself. He doesn't say examine each other. He says, I want you to examine yourself. When we examine ourselves, it's for the purpose of making the necessary changes, right? And, and that's what it's all about. And He has warned them, in fact, that if they don't, some horrible things could happen. In fact, some horrible things had already happened here to this very church. He said, for this cause, some of you are sick. Some of you are weak. In fact, some of you sleep. That is, some of them had died all because of the fact that they had partaken of the Lord's table in an unworthily fashion. And the warning is this, that you need to examine yourself before you actually eat. Now, when we examine ourselves, we need a standard, right? Is that right? Don't we need some standard of right and wrong? I mean, don't, don't, don't we need to know, you know, where we ought to be in our relationship with God? It doesn't do any good to just examine yourself, you know, arbitrarily and without any kind of sure standard. Just, you know, look within and think about the kind of person you are. We have to have a, a, a perfect standard, and that standard is Jesus Christ. And as we close, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to leave thinking about this tonight. What was Jesus doing just before He instituted the Lord's Supper? What was He doing just before He was taken to be crucified? What? What was He doing? Remember, they're in the upper room. It's described in John chapter 13. Here they are. In the upper room, not one, not one of those men had given any thought to the custom of washing one another's feet. In other words, not one of those men had any thought about anybody else, including the Lord. You see, your treatment of others is always determined by your relationship to the Lord, always. We mistreat others because our relationship with God is not right. It always gets back to that. They haven't given any thought to just being mannerly, just following the custom and trying to refresh one another by washing their feet. The only one that gave any thought to that was the Lord. That's what He was doing just before He was spit upon just before He was mocked and cursed and beaten and nailed to the cross. Here's the question. If you knew that you were going to die at midnight tonight, and especially if you knew that you were going to die tonight at midnight a violent death at the hands of of your neighbors, what would be on your mind? What would you be doing? If Jesus is the standard, if He is our example, should we not, uh, should we not be thinking about exactly the same thing He was thinking about just before He died? I mean, after all, He's the example. 
So what was he thinking about? What was going through his mind? Because, believe me, this was no surprise to Jesus. He was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Every blow from the whip. Every time the hammer landed on the nail and... Every little small detail about the crucifixion, Jesus saw all of that. He lived in the shadow of the cross. He anticipated every bit of that, so he's not surprised. He knows what is ahead. And there's no complaint. He does not utter one word about this being unfair and cruel and unusual punishment. or He doesn't try to make a case for himself. In fact, when he is falsely charged with the mockery of a trial, he doesn't even answer. He knew that would do no good. And he stands there in silence and he's condemned to die for us. And the one thing he's thinking about is us. Thinking about others. What would you be thinking about if you knew you were going to die at midnight tonight? What is the one thing that you would want to do before you expired? I just wonder how many of us would say, I want to wash somebody's feet. I want to make sure I do something that will refresh and encourage and bless them. Most of us would be thinking about ourselves, but Jesus was thinking about others So in closing, I have to ask this question. What in the world would prompt somebody to be thinking of others when others would be thinking only of themselves? What what would cause somebody to want to spend their last few hours washing dirty feet? I'll tell you what it is. It's an attitude of gratitude. He took the bread and He gave thanks knowing that bread was His body. And He said, Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. When we are truly thankful for what God has provided, nobody has to beg us to serve or to be faithful. It comes natural when we have an attitude of gratitude. That's the way it was for Jesus. It'll be the same way for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, these lips cannot even begin to explain the greatness of Your love that was demonstrated there in that upper room. And Lord, we know from the testimony of those men what it meant to them. 
We know how they were affected, and we know how they were literally changed after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Help us, Heavenly Father, to realize that just like Jesus, we're here in this world only for a limited amount of time. Our days are few and our troubles are going to be many. Help us to remember what He said about the night coming when no man can work. The time when there will be no more feet to wash, no more tears to dry, no more people to help. So help us, Heavenly Father, to do what we can while we can. And here in a few weeks as we come to your table, as we partake of those elements, may all of this be a reminder that we must do so with thankful hearts. When we leave here tonight, Lord, help us to not complain about our petty problems, but to think only about the greatness of your grace. And the fact that in your mercy you withheld the punishment that we deserve, and in your grace you gave us what we did not deserve. Help us to show we're thankful by by helping, blessing other folk that we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, as we 